Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined as always by producer and co-host Jason Daphnis. How are you, Jason? I'm okay, Matt, and really glad to be back for another episode, and really glad to be back on your birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yes, You thought thank I wouldn't you. mention it. Oh, thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm just having a chill day. Got the day off. We're going to do a little podcasting, and then I'm uh, going to go on a little boat ride uh, with Ooh. a couple friends later. So this should be nice, and my daughter. Um, Sounds like fun. Yeah, so thank you. Um, and as a, a gift to myself, we have a great guest this week, Tom Salta. Um, if you've played video games, you've probably heard some of his stuff. Uh, he has uh, done a, a ton of games, uh, soundtracks, Red Steel 2, uh, Player Unknown Battlegrounds, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Future Soldier, uh, Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands, which I was listening to this week, is a really a really nice score that does some kind of cool things with like world music and, and, and electronic textures. Uh, upcoming, he's got on September 14th, he, he did some music for Deathloop by Arcane and Bethesda, which is coming out very soon. And uh, he's he's got a really uh, uh, interesting background in the music business. So uh, welcome, Tom. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming by. Thanks, Matt. And happy birthday. That's awesome. What are you doing here? <laughs> Well, you know, podcasting is a, a stern mistress. You know what I mean. You gotta, you gotta, make, <laughs> you gotta make sure we get it done. Um, so <laughs> die hard. But uh, kind of, you know, we ran through some of your video game credits. Uh, I was, you know, kind of going through some of your background. Uh, I would encourage people if you're interested in in sort of Tom's background and sort of uh, his career and just you know general approach to music. He has a he's a great TED talk that I that I checked out, which is really interesting. That goes through a lot of the evolution of your career um I, I was really curious you have a lot of uh, i was kind of going through your credits on allmusic.com and you have a ton of uh, studio credits prior to your your uh, work in games with houston mary j blige uh peter gabriel sinead o'connor um gosh tons of everything but the girl which i think <laughs> is that's a super underrated band in terms of like kind of maybe kind of bringing indie music and electronic together actually share yeah um uh so oh another one too i want to ask uh arthur baker yeah <laughs> yeah okay so i just want people like arthur baker and I, i'd be curious on your take on him because uh he's kind of one of those he might be the most influential musician that like most people have zero idea who he is in terms of like where music is today how music is made today and uh so what what did you work with him on well, I remember, I mean, this is going back to so Arthur Baker. I mean, I first heard his name in the 80s, right? Um, and so, by, in fact, I worked with uh, his ex-wife and I was producing writing songs with her. She was an artist, too. Uh, she sang that 80s one-hit wonder hit like Honey to a Bee. She was she was Tina B. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a club, club yeah, kind of exactly. thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. how I knew his stuff. So I think with Arthur Baker, I was doing some uh, remix stuff with Junior Vasquez in the 90s. I think that's where our paths crossed. Okay, yeah. Um, For people that don't know, Arthur Baker was a very kind of influential, I guess, you know, hip-hop, club music, maybe sort of the beginnings of modern electronic dance music. Yeah, a lot of freestyle dance, you know, 80s dance club Uh, music. Planet Rock by Africa Bambada and the Soul Sonic Force is obviously like one of the more influential, I think, songs uh in terms of of kind of club and hip-hop so i just thought that was an interesting credit um i was curious i, I saw a lot of your credits back that intended to be like uh i don't know programming some composition yeah. yeah uh when you worked with you know obviously i'm sure you know when you work on like a, a whitney houston record or a share record or whoever like it's a a huge team of uh professionals coming together for this stuff what was your sort of 
I guess, zone or general role that you kind of played in some of these projects? It, it evolved over the years. Um, so when it came to share, um, for example, I was working for Junior Vasquez and he was hired as producer um, to write and produce, um, or at least in this case, produce a song on her record, uh, or at least a few of them. And uh, he called me in because he was more of a DJ, wasn't very technical. Uh, and, you know, he, he was a DJ. He was a dedicated DJ, superstar DJ. And um, so I would often come in as, you know, his musical voice. So I would, uh, I got a chance to meet Cher. We were sitting in the room together with Junior and Cher sitting on the couch. And uh, she wanted to do a remake of a song called The Power uh, on her album. Uh, the Believe album. So I, you know, sat there and she was explaining the kind of vibe and what have you. And, you know, and I was just trying to understand what she was going for, how the approach would go. And then really it was up to me to lay down the music, lay down all the tracks. Um, I, uh, Junior knew that I had a lot of contacts as far as, you know, certain kinds of session musicians and stuff. So I brought in, um, Eddie Martinez, who was, uh, one of the, most famous guitarist from the eighties uh, played with Robert Palmer, you know, sim- he was in the video rock box with run DMC happened to mm. be my wife's uncle. I called him the background singers and, you know, lay down all the music. So that was a very active role. I was kind of like a secondary producer role on that. Um, and then, but other, for other projects, let's say like Whitney Houston, uh, that was more of a straight remix. Cause I was, I redid how will I know, which is my favorite Whitney Houston song. And uh, I did a dance uh, remix of it for, uh, again, for Junior. He was he was my main guy that I would do a lot of, you know, high-end remixes for uh, in the 90s. So that was considered programming. But in, in those days, what a programmer is, it's not someone who's typing in <laughs> typing yeah. in notes or code. I'm actually playing it. Right, you know, right. Like it, it's drum the, machine It's the musician that, that, that's p- putting it down on the computer. That's what they call programming. Yeah, and I wanted to also touch. You, you touched on this. I've I've seen some interviews in the TED Talk, but um, you know, at a certain point in your career, you, I guess, you kind of made the change into video games. You also had the Atlas Plug, uh, which yeah. is a a project. Um, you have a, a few albums under that name, and they were, I guess, they're you know, to me, I was listening to them. and They seem very like kind of, uh, you know, kind of electronic, very suited for like you know action movie kind of soundtrack vibes. I would say, mm-hmm. um, and, and and obviously video games are pretty close to that vibe as well. Let's so talk a little bit. I just you know briefly about um, you know what made you make that change and kind of what you saw in terms of the changing tides of the music industry. Yeah. So um, my dream right from the beginning in 1989 was to be a uh, you know a big famous record producer, a la Mutt Lang, Jimmy Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Trevor yep. Horn, that kind of thing. And um, so that was the path I was looking at. That was my target. And um, you know, throughout the 90s, I you know we did many many things. Some of what we just talked about. And then right around 2001. Um, a lot of things change in the world. And this is where high speed internet came out. This is where file sharing and, and downloading of music and piracy, you know, LimeWire, Napster, all of that started happening. Yeah. Uh, also, I was already, uh, I got married in 97. So I already had a son and a mortgage. And, um, and now I start to, uh, read the tea leaves of what's going to happen to the music industry. And I'm, I'm looking at people just like people stop buying albums. 
they're just downloading music for free. And I'm like, oh, man, you know. <laughs> so yeah. I, I kind of was very disheartened and a little panicked. And I'm like, I got to reinvent myself. This is where am I going to take this? And um, I would had always been a gamer my whole life. And, you know, in those days, that's when Halo came out and uh, Rainbow Six. I remember I was playing Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, you know, games like that. I started listening. I'm like, wait, this, this music is amazing. You know, I loved Zelda music and Mario, but I wasn't inspired to make a career of going. That wasn't my thing. But when I started hearing, you know, again, the, the music of some of these other games, more Western games, if you will. Uh, I was, I was blown away. I'm like, this is it. This is my future. This is what I need to be doing. Um, so, um, I was like, okay, well, I've been in the business for 15 years already. I know how to make an album from scratch. Well, what do I do? Like, I don't have any credits. I, I know enough to realize they're not going to really, you know, I, I need some credits. I try, yeah. I went to E3 and I couldn't get any, you know, interest as being a composer. They're like, yeah, whatever. So, then I, I figured out, well, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna try to get in, reinvent myself, why don't I just start over and become an artist and put an album together of, of material that would catch their ears? So that's really what I did. I became Atlas Plug and I created an album that would be perfectly suited for licensing in video games and film trailers in TV. And it was stuff that, you know, when you talk about licensing music in video games, it's going to generally be used in driving games and sports games, right? Uh, you know, stuff that you put on the radio and it's playing yeah. in the background. So that's pretty much what I aim to do. And crazy as it seems, it worked. Uh, my publisher got a call from Microsoft and, and called to license four songs in a game called Rally Sport Challenge 2 in 2003. And then soon after that, games like Crackdown and, and, um, uh, and, and other games, uh, Project Gotham Racing and what have you. And then I got myself an agent and I started pitching to be a composer, you know, to score original music, not just, you know, create albums. Cause that was just my door in. Um, and, uh, that's where it began. You know, that's how I kind of reinvented myself. I've never lost my love for music production and, and recording with artists, but you know, this is where, this is where the uh, tide was, was going. And so I jumped in and I'm glad I did. Yeah. Obviously you've had great success and, and continued success. And, um, that, that's, that's great. A point you, you made a little bit ago, I think ties in well with your, your choice of albums this week, actually. And I was thinking about, um, Actually, my choice as well. Uh, because, you know, these albums, uh, So by Peter Gabriel, Houses of the Holy by Led Zeppelin, they're about a decade apart, mid seventies, you know, mid eighties. And I, it kind of, I was thinking about your career and, and who you are. And I, I was like, I totally get, you know, both these albums, I think one's sort of at the beginning and one's probably at the height of maybe what you want to call, I don't know, the imperial phase of rock and roll. Um, where like there's just, you know, starting in the mid seventies, you know, you're coming out of the sixties bands like Led Zeppelin are starting to play like, you know, football stadiums and things like that. You obviously have you know, stuff like disco and Fleetwood Mac and, you know, Peter Frampton, and then going into the eighties with thriller and, you know, just there's so much money in the industry and listening to this Gabriel record and the Zeppelin record to a degree is like, man, you know, they don't make them like this anymore, you know, in terms of like just albums where it's like, you can tell there's unlimited resources, you know, world-class studios, no expense spared, you know, big-time producers, big-time session people. And um, I don't know, it's just like, so is, is really kind of a, 
I don't know if there's a certain sort of 80s production. It feels like to me sort of like one of the high watermarks of a certain style of kind of like making music in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, for me, the reason I pick so is because uh, for me, Peter Gabriel is is really one of my favorite artists. I mean, and, and I say that based on a lifetime of listening to him. And it just seems that he constantly is beyond he's outside of the norm. He he ex, he really stretches boundaries of creativity he does things that most people don't do, and there's a certain quality and character that is just unrecognizable. Uh, well, unrecognizable. It's instantly recognizable. Uh, you can't really compare it to anything else. And um, I just really love that. And, and it, his music also tends to take you somewhere else. I mean, so many other artists do that for me as well, like Pink Floyd. You know, I, I could have named tons of albums that were very influential for me or at least songs but yeah peter gabriel is just the things he did he would do unique things you listen to the instrumentation of even now it's like how did he do that that is so creative yeah and it's so layered and there's so many just yeah details uh, yeah just details and just sort of even within a song that's very accessible and has sort of a conventional structure there's the instrumentation the arrangements yeah um there's this very odd uh, uh, details and, and cool details. Um, well, we should we should hear some. Uh, uh, why don't we? Well, I mean, we could go with the big one. This is this is the song that I think if if you know one Peter Gabriel song, you probably know this one. <laughs> of course, um, you, you know, and he and not that he doesn't have a, a ton of hits. Um, obviously, at this point in his career, he was really kind of on top of the world. I was actually thinking about the fact that. Um, his breakup with Genesis might have been the most mutually beneficial breakup <laughs> of all because like he, you know he was synonymous with Genesis as sort of a progressive rock band they break up and they they both were so successful afterwards that it almost sort of I think there was tons of people that had zero idea he was ever even in Genesis. Yeah right I know it's crazy. I mean it's it's almost erased that whole period because like both of those bands and and Genesis really concurrently with so are you know, they're at the top of the world as well. And um, so it was kind of interesting. But um, I'd like, let's start with, uh, let's start at the beginning of Red Rain. I think this has always been really one of my favorite songs by him. And I think it's so kind of atmospheric and um, it just shows his his um, ability with arrangements and, and just his voice has such a unique grain to it. And it, it's one of the most unique and, and I think great voices in, in, in rock history to me. Tom, jump in here, but I, I just think the, the these arrangements are so cool, and, and the the approach to percussion and like bass and the rhythm section is so interesting to me on this album as a whole. Yeah, you know, it's the epitome of that how you can say that the music is greater than the sum of its parts. 
And I think that's the sign of just that magic that, that the magic that this music creates. Um, and whether it be, you know, Tony Levin, uh, I think he's playing bass on this, right? And just everything, there's nothing typical about it. You know, the way the, the drums were performed, the way all the instruments were performed, of course, his voice. I mean, he could just sing, ah, and, and you know who it is. So, um, it just takes you somewhere. Uh, what can I say? Yeah, definitely. And it's just a great chorus, and, and he sings it so beautifully. Um, I I love that the song starts with a chorus. You know, that takes confidence. Yeah. That's yeah, <laughs> kind of an old school, like, almost... 50s kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, Matt, you've got a timestamp at 3 minutes 30. Do you want to jump straight there in this track? Yeah, I just wanted to see. There's kind of a cool, you know, different kind of bridge here that comes in. I really think that's it's pretty cool. Here we go. What a vocalist. I don't know, it's such an epic kind of feel to that song, and I, I've always really loved that. Um, I actually forgot we were supposed to listen to Sledgehammer, and then I got to talking. A lot of entry points into this album. Do you want to jump straight there? <laughs> yeah, uh, Tom, you had uh, 117 of Sledgehammer. Yeah, I tried to be very diligent that we were going to just play 30-second yeah, yeah, yeah. segments, so yeah, I yeah. tried to find the, the moment in the songs that would cover the most ground. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, Sledgehammer was a huge hit, had a, a video that's I think still probably considered one of the most creative videos of all time. That was kind of this claymation stop motion thing. And uh, yeah, this is just, I mean, this is just a hit song, right? You know, I'm sure you've been in the industry and just heard songs where it's like, that's it, right? Yeah. You just know right away. It's like, what is that? All right. Here is Sledgehammer. So, I mean, listen to that bass sound that Tony Levin is playing. That's just the sound that he's got there is so unique and identifiable. Mm -hmm. It's he's playing the the bass, but then there's a there's a sub octave below it. And then it sounds like there's like a phaser on it. So it's this really (laughs) weird, cool texture that makes that bass different. And. That's the kind of mm-hmm. stuff I'm talking about. It's like, okay, yeah, I could just, that would have sounded great with a regular bass, but the fact that they did that, it just shows that they're true artists. I mean, what's that? It's not a Farfisa. It's some kind of weird, it's like, I still don't know what that is. It's, you know, like the, the sounds are so unique. They just went the extra mile to do something that hadn't been heard before. I mean, how many pop songs of that era also had, you know, uh, that kind of brass treatment, you know? That's just so strange and unique mm-hmm. uh, and daring. It is. And daring. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that sounds like it. I mean, and that's really one of the the reasons I love the music that I love is is just it's 
it just expands your mind. And that's one of my greatest criticisms of so much of the music today is it's the same beat and the same sounds and the same basically song over and over. Right. Um, but these are the things that really broke ground. You yeah. Know, and, and just picking those albums apart. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is that like, you know, a hit song is sort of so, uh, you know, irresistible that it just seems like it was always there, you know, after you hear it. But, um, you know, this was really for a guy that came out of progressive rock in the seventies and then did, you know, his early albums are amazing. They're, they're artier than this album and maybe more difficult in some ways, but you know, him sort of doing this, like basically what's an kind of a modern arty version of like an old school, like sixties, like soul R and B song was really not what people would expect from Peter Gabriel either at that time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's, you can listen to some of the other songs that, that I, I marked down a couple of things, but you know, there's some funky stuff in there. Yeah. Why don't we go to another one of your picks? Uh, this is, you know, another, I think highlight of the album and features a guest appearance by an artist we've covered on a previous uh, mm-hmm. episode. And one of my favorites, uh, I think another one of, uh, to me, a contemporary of, of Gabriel and the fact that she is just completely unique and she had her own musical worldview that was completely unique to her. Kate Bush uh, sings on this song, but it's called Don't Give Up. And this is just, uh, this is a beautiful song. It's very affecting to me. Yeah, and the instrumentation again is, is just beautifully simple and bigger than the, the sum of its parts. Of course, her voice is just magical, and I, I think that's quite quite uh, a bragging rights to, to be a featured vocalist on a Peter Gabriel album because his voice is known to be just so iconic and textury and grainy, and 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 her voice just is magic. It, it, and the emotion is just overwhelming in this song. Even the video, they're just standing there hugging each other the whole time. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. you listen to the, uh, the instrumentation, you have this, this bass line, which is, you know, often playing two notes at the, the same time, which is amazing and cool and different. You know, the, uh, the thick, beautiful pads on the synthesizer where I don't, it sounds like a prophet to me, but just beautiful, uh, pad a sound there and just some of the background uh textures uh, in the music it it's just true magic um to me when you just listen to it. it it really takes you somewhere else and just the way they you know on a peter gabriel record the produ- the the production of it they they'd always do some strategic doubling of his voice and then it would go from double to single and it's one of the things that makes it sound the way it did and they they also did that on kate bush's voice as well you can hear it that's also why it's so thick, because they had like mm. a double, which is the same volume as the other voice, and on on many of the phrases and just oh, I, I just I just can listen to the details and pick it apart. It's like wow, that it's just mm-hmm. that, that was my biggest teacher throughout all my life is how I learned is just by doing this kind of critical 
uh, listening and reverse engineering. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. I mean, I had no idea those were doubles, but um, I'll have to listen to that again uh, after the show and, and try to pick those. Those are maybe some of the details that I'm sure you probably pick up on just having more yeah. experience in that in that in the studio environment. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to hear uh, this one is not a. Uh, I have a couple here that before we get to uh, another one of the really big ones, uh, a couple of the big ones, uh, a couple ones that I think aren't as well known, but I really like. One is uh, just from the beginning, Mercy Street. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very moody, and uh, I just think this is a really beautiful song as well. This song makes me wonder, you're a production yeah. guy. Um, how, with so many textures and so many different sounds, mm-hmm. you got like, you know, an arpeggiated synth and mm-hmm. you've got rhythm and you got his voice and mm-hmm. like a bass line. How do you keep music like this from sounding like crowded? Wow. And I wouldn't even call this crowded. You should hear my stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the thing is <laughs> giving everything its own space is really the thing. There's nothing in here that's redundant. Like those little synths on the high end, that's it. That's the only stuff that's there. Mm. You know, the bass is down, out of the way. You know, um, the pad is just the soup, that the glue that holds it all together. Um, yeah. And his mm-hmm. voice, again, if you listen to it, it's an octave double, right? That's what also gives it a unique sound. And he's singing underneath it. And that's part of the magic of his voice is when he layers himself like that. You don't even realize it. Um, yeah. But uh, but again, it just, this, even that synth sound, you know, and I'm, you know, Mr. Synth programmer. I know how to like it was my job when I was on tour with Bobby Brown to copy every single sound I heard and program them for all the players and stuff. And you know, like his sounds are not obvious. It's like, what is that exactly? Mm. You know, it's just like so yeah, yeah. unique. Yeah. Some of this too, I always like, especially the intro of this to me, um, you know, you coming from a more score and, and, and soundtrack world, like um, if you if this didn't have vocals, a lot of stuff, stuff feels like it could be sort of like movie soundtrack. I'm glad stuff, you, you said know? that. That's exactly one of the reasons why I think I gravitate to this stuff. You could say the same with some art, other artists, but not many. Like again, Pink Floyd, I think, is one of those artists where you take the vocals mm-hmm. out, or at least you take like the introduction. It's like, whoa, is this like a movie? Yeah, you know, like yep. you'll have that, and, and this is one of the techniques I do a lot. Uh, you know, like that little repeating phrase, dink a dink a dink, you know, having a repeating phrase that goes the whole time, and then the music changes around it. I love doing that. 
listen to my soundtracks and you'll pick it out all the time. I've, I did that on Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter. You know, I, I did that on Battlegrounds PUBG. I've done that in countless things where there's a phrase that's, you know, whatever. And the music is bending around it. And I just love finding those things that you can kind of keep going through the whole song. And this is just one of countless examples of how some of yeah. my, you know, my musical DNA uh, personality has been influenced uh, even subconsciously when I wasn't actively thought I was critically listening to this yeah. kind of music growing up. Yeah. Um, let's let's get to one of the other kind of you know up tempo hits. Uh, you had uh, big time at about ten seconds, but this is another one. This is probably the closest you know to Sledgehammer. Uh, this is all, also I think a pretty big uh, single. Or I've I've heard it on yeah. The radio listen for to the sure. bass line in this one. I want to highlight that. So is that a combo of synth and regular bass, or do you think it's just I, – I can never tell. I know, right? Now, that is uh, – as far as I know, that's 100% Fairlight. Um, and the Fairlight was – this Fairlight CMI was this state-of-the-art, super expensive, you know, $75,000-plus uh, sampler, uh, synthesizer. Uh, that only again, you know, the artists with unlimited budget pretty much had access to that in the Sin Clavier, mm -hmm. and that sound. I mean, listen to it. There's like, uh, and it's so funky. It's like, ding, 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 yeah. Ding, there's ding, there's ding, this ding, thing. There's oh. a second that happens in the main riff where like there's like a little triplet hit, like a brr, and I thought that can't be a human, <laughs> not that consistently, not that well. So it makes sense. It's that so it's great. And like a piece of machinery, it's great. I mean, this sounds like a Nile Rodgers. I'm not sure who's playing it on this, but it's super funky. Yeah, I got that kind of disco. You know? Oh. Yeah. So funky. And again, listen to his voice octaves, right? <laughs> He's singing I'm not going to be able to not hear that now. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. It, that's one thing that you pointed out that I didn't I didn't realize what I was hearing when I was hearing it that that he yeah. doubles a lot and does you know like octave stuff. Yeah, he really he treats his voice like a like an instrument. He plays with it and does all kinds of cool stuff. And I think he that's the way he approaches his art in general. His music he approaches that way. His music videos he approaches that way. It's like what can I do that hasn't been done before? How can I be different? How can I you know expand artistically? And that's mm -hmm. that's one of the why I resonate with Peter Gabriel so much. He still is an influence to me to this day. I mean, I yeah. love that song at the end of Wally. -E. Oh my god, down to the ground. I, I yeah. cried <laughs> the first time I heard that. I'm like, this is insane. You know? It's incredible. Was he was he just too weird for Genesis? Um I I think they just you know, maybe having those <laughs> Well, I wouldn't say too too weird because I mean Genesis was pretty weird. They were definitely starting to go in a pop direction, and I don't know. I think it may be some personality issues as well. You know, um, mm, I because his early stuff up. is fairly odd, but you know, they Genesis was a pretty weird band too. You know, um, yeah, yeah. I I just remember seeing like my basic research on Wikipedia shows him on stage with the rest of the band members, and he's in some like gigantic pizza monster costume or something. <laughs> like, yeah, were they that theatrical a band because of him, or was that just part of their DNA? He, that was, I mean, he was kind of unique. Yeah. He, he, he wore a lot of costumes and makeup mm -hmm. and, you know, 
towards the end, he had this kind of weird, like mental patient kind of look going on, almost like a, uh, clockwork orange kind of vibe. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, he, he, he experimented with kind of personas and stuff. And I think, you know, I think maybe it was just like, they were both growing. Uh, I think Genesis maybe went towards a pop direction earlier than he did. And then he sort of got there, um, by this point, but, um, okay. So yeah, yeah, I I guess I just love seeing an artist take control of their, you know, their art that way. And his, all his early, he has like four albums that are just called Peter Gabriel. Um, with no title, um, they just have different <laughs> cover art, but they're all really uh, amazing records as well. Um, I, w- I was curious, uh, uh, Tom, when you mentioned the Fairlight, um, mm. this is kind of a side point, but you, know, you obviously, you know, late 80s, early 90s is still pretty much a, a hardware driven world, and you know, something like a, a Fairlight, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming now it like I could get online and buy like a $75 like plug in or something in, in, yeah, you know, know, there is the Fairlight plug in. It's, I don't think it's $75 unless you get it on sale, but. Yeah. But it's not 75,000. <laughs> but it's not 75,000. I'll tell you that. Yeah. No, today, I mean, I have over t- four terabytes of a terabyte. Oh my God. I remember, you know, carrying around a box of a hundred discs, which was a hundred megs. You know, I thought I was, I was like crazy. Now I, you know, four terabytes are just sample libraries and, and stuff, mm-hmm. every, everything. Mm-hmm. So literally it's a studio in a box. You know, I have every piece of dream gear that I ever wanted. You know, in virtual form, sometimes I have, you know, a couple of hardware things that I just can't get rid of, like my mini Moog and stuff like that. But yeah, um, yeah, you don't need them, you know, you don't need it. And uh, just the speed and convenience of working with plugins and the recall ability, you know, in those days they would hire, you know, you'd have to if you wanted to recall a song, you know, you'd have to have the engineer's assistant spend all morning you know, recalling the mixing console. I mean, this is before automation and stuff like that. So mm-hmm, it was a different mm-hmm. world. Different For sure. world. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. I was reading some article with some, you know, producer from that's had a long career and he talked about like, he started to just use like Polaroids. Right. And he would just, right. he would take snapshots of like keyboards or snapshots of the mixing desk and stuff just to like, sure. Uh, document that stuff. Yeah. Um, I think before, I think the last song we should probably do, this is, uh, this is another, I don't know, this, certain songs I think kind of get a life of their own, um, above and beyond even the album. This one obviously was featured in, um, the movie Say Anything, famously played out of a boombox by John Cusack. Um, but it's, uh, In Your Eyes. And, um, this is, you know, you have it at 115, but, um, talk a little bit about this song and, and what it kind of means. Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly this is one of the, the ballads, the, the, the rare ballad that is just life changing. Uh, so poetic. Um, just, just, there's so much art that goes into this and, and I don't know. I don't, I don't know if talking about it will really do it justice. You know, there, it's That's true. just, uh, as Frank Zappa says, talking about music is like dancing about art. So I say just <laughs> here, here. just play it. <laughs> so soon we'll burn without a noise, without my pride. I'll reach out from the inside. And you heard that repeating phrase there. Mm-hmm. And I love that modulation there. Oh, it's just so powerful. And then how at the, by the end of the song, I mean, he he brings in I don't know if they were if it was African or or Aborigine singers 
Um, but I love how we work with native singers, and it would also add this incredible worldly sound, universal sound, and uniqueness. I believe it's um, gosh, it's a, he was a very big star in Africa. Um, yeah, yeah, I think his name was Yusu Denor. Um, was the guy that sang on this, um, and I think he was like a very, very big pop artist in Africa. All right, well, that was So by Peter Gabriel. Tom really enjoyed that pick. It was it was really fun to, I don't know, just, I mean, I've heard a lot of that album and I've heard those songs, but I never really listened in like a, one of the things I like about the podcast is it sort of makes me listen to songs in a lot more detail and with a lot more attention. And, and this is an album that I think really rewards uh, close listening and, and attention to the details and, you know, some of the, yes. the things that you talked about. For sure. Um, now we're going to switch gears to my pick, another... Uh, Extremely iconic artist, uh, one of the bigger rock bands probably that ever existed. Um, Led Zeppelin, their album Houses of the Holy. Um, so for me, Zeppelin was kind of, you know, I was definitely growing up in, 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 you know, listening to stuff that was popular. And then, you know, I think, I don't know when it was junior high or something like that. Uh, you know, somebody's uncle kind of gave me and my friend like Led Zeppelin 4. And I don't know, it just, it just, the band kind of captured my imagination that they seemed sort of, I don't know. It, they weren't, you know, probably wasn't even that long ago, but they just seemed like from a different time and very mysterious to me. And, you know, there's just something about this band that has always really um, stuck with me um, and, and just the musicianship and a lot of things. Um, Tom, I'm curious, do you, were you, I know you were kind of definitely more from the electronic kind of, you know, dance world. Did, did Zeppelin mean much to you? I mean, I'm sure obviously just being alive yeah. in the world you knew about Led Zeppelin but oh yeah no no it did it did absolutely I associate my first my first encounters with Zeppelin uh was thanks to my much older brothers uh who were born in the 50s and so you know they were listening to Zeppelin and I was a little tot running around um so I heard all these amazing music from the cool room right you know where everybody was hanging out and I wanted to be let in so you know I'd hear a whole bunch of stuff I've heard, you know, Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull and Pink Floyd and, and tons of other things. So uh, I had a very early education, uh, arg- well, certainly earlier than my 80s education uh, in the 70s. I was yeah. definitely hearing a lot of classic rock, progressive rock, um, just jazz and very interesting music. And uh, it definitely colored my uh, my musical DNA. And then I encountered it later, you know, when I was in high school. Um, we played a bunch of Led Zeppelin songs in my uh, high school band, you know, so uh, it, it goodness gracious, Led Zeppelin is, is one of a kind. And, and, you know, his voice was just unmistakable and it's still hot today. I mean, it's still used today. They still use some of the songs and movies and, it's, yeah. you know, Led Zeppelin is timeless. Yeah, they. I mean, they're definitely in that, I think, Beatles, Pink Floyd, you know, where they, they tend to just find the next generation you know, somehow and, and kind of still resonate. Um, let's click it up. This is actually not a huge Zeppelin like hit or anything, but it's always been sort of one of my favorite songs. It's a bit, the first song in the album and it's called song remains the same, which was eventually the title of their live album. Um, interestingly, the song houses, the Holy is actually on physical graffiti, which was the next album. Um, but this song, I, there, if I had to just sort of pick one of the things I love about Zeppelin is just this like, 
exciting kind of like grandiose just huge feeling thing and the, and the way this song about the first they almost go through a whole song before the vocals even kick in on the song but it's just to me this is just like so exhilarating and bonham's drumming and 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 all the guitar work at, at the beginning of song remains the same is just really like thrilling to me still I think this I've, I've heard, saw came across some bootlegs on uh, YouTube where this is like a, a set opener often. Uh, yeah, you can tell it's it's a very vamping type song. Yeah, but just yeah, I mean, just the interplay of like the guitar, bass, and drums. I mean, all three of these musicians were so amazing. Obviously, the one of the great rhythm sections of all time. Um, but Tom, I'm curious. Like, I was hoping you could help me out because there's always been something interesting about just. Page has very unique. I don't know if you want to call them chord voicings or, mm. you know what I mean. Like there's this is almost yes. kind of weird suspended feel to like a lot of his chords, as opposed to a lot of '70s rock bands where it's very much like, you know, that's right, like that's one right. five chords or like power chords kind of stuff. Yeah, I can't, you know, and I'm I'm the kind of musician that's a little bit more instinctual, and it's, you know, most of my musician friends will be able to call out the numbers of the chords or at least you know the, the ex- even the hand positionings and stuff like that but i just kind of hear it and i and i do associate i can it's unident it's it's completely uh identifiable um the way he plays you know there's just a mm. certain character to the way he plays i you know whether it's the the i don't know the suspensions in the chords or whatever yeah. uh, and the uniqueness i mean there, i on the call outs that i uh have for this song you know some of the things are just stick out. I'm like, wow, I've never heard it. I like, I don't think I can't think of another song with that chord in it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow, that's I mean, pretty I, impressive. You know? I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, like even, you know, just there's certain bands like where like, like say Black Sabbath, a great band that I, that I like, you know, but when we were kids, it was kind of easy. We'd hear like Iron Man and be like, dun, 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 you know, or like smoke on the water kind of stuff. Whereas sure. like, I don't know how to sit down and like, learn what he's doing here you know what i mean like <laughs> I, I, it's just not as like yeah there was he, some serious musicianship and, yeah yeah a lot of skill and and just you know the way he even incorporates weird like almost country-ish licks into like sort of a heavy rock song sometimes or um, oh yeah you can tell his influences were very very eclectic yeah and they, you know, obviously you know folk music they had a huge folk element which we'll hear mm-hmm. um but yeah this this song i've always loved um we should uh, let's see what you had. Um, when we one of your picks was uh, the ocean. Um, this, I mean, this riff kind of just <laughs> speaks for itself. It's kind of yeah. Uh, what I love about some of the riffs too is it's kind of like it feels like it should be awkward, but it just totally like feels natural and just rocks. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Thank you. 
Jason, I know you're a huge time signature guy. And I looked this up. This is, it, it's basically, <laughs> I've seen it as four, four and seven eighths time signature yeah. or like they do four four measures and then there's a twelve eight measure thrown in there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. So which Yeah, it's I don't understand, but it, it, it's cool, man. It's <laughs> But the fact is like they, they you like they get me doing that and like it just you still nod your head to it. It doesn't feel like awkward or you know mm-hmm. Yeah, they catch it right on the ha- on the half bar there, so it, it it actually works. And again, it's like damn you it you know, some people can just do that because they can and they, you know, it's like, oh, cool, I studied and I can show off how I can do things that you can't. But they do it in a musical way that's just unforgettable, you know, and you, you combine the artistry with the skill and and just being ahead of your time um, and the talent and just, oh, I don't know, it's, it's what makes, you know, stars. Yeah, no, it's... It reminds me of... Um... We covered television on this show with Matt oh, Sweeney, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and some of their stuff is very like just slightly angular, out of time yep. a little bit, you know, yep. or like taking a slightly longer pause than usual. And it feels like Tom said, just natural, like part of like an extension of their musicianship, not like a gimmick. Not we gotta yes, make this a yeah, prog song. Yeah, Let's remove yeah. a beat from the measure. Like they're adding to the song no, by yeah. doing that. I mean, all all the kids smoking pot in the parking lot had no idea this was like twelve eight <laughs> or you know. <laughs> That's I mean? right. They just thought it was an awesome rock song, you know. Um, yeah. This, so this one I, is truly not like one of my favorite Zeppelin songs, um, uh, but I just want to play a little bit because um, to me, like I, I when I was listening to this, I was like, my God, like you talk about just amazing drum sounds. And this is Dire Maker. It's a little bit kind of phony reggae for me a little bit, but man, like I just was so struck. And, and Tom, you, can, you know, I'm sure you've been involved in, you know, drums and all and percussion stuff. But to me, this is just like, Bottom's drum sound on this track is just so huge. It's just amazing to me. I mean, it's just like... Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of do like this song, actually. I'm trying to be too cool. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of their most, you know, pop... This is what I call bar music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's it's there in the background, and you know you know it, and it's it has the reggae thing, so it's like yeah. But I mean, it is. It's also indicative of something I like about Zeppelin is that, like you know, right there, um, they were never afraid. You know, as much as they were sort of, I wouldn't necessarily consider them a heavy metal band, but they were kind of definitely heavy rock and leading towards heavy metal, but. They were definitely not afraid to try anything, you know, even if it didn't feel like that's what Zeppelin was supposed to be doing, you know? And, yeah. Um, I think we can go from this to actually uh, another thing that very much proves this point, and also just the rhythm section. Uh, the crunch, I know you, you had down, and um, this is a great I, example, too, of a, yeah. just they're unafraid to, like, do anything, you know? That's right. Just listen to the little segment, and you'll hear what I'm why I highlighted it. I mean, tell me if you couldn't imagine just hearing James Brown on this. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Totally. I mean, take him out and just put James Brown. Yeah, I mean, that... 
I mean, and, funk. These white yeah. boys can funk. Yeah, I mean, and truly, like, you know, like, there wasn't a lot of white rock bands that could change gears like this, you know, no. and, and convince, like, I mean, like, Black Sabbath couldn't do this or, you know, Bad no. Company or whatever, you know what I mean? Not that they're not great bands. And but. this is what I miss about the music, you know, when, when we hit, you know, modern times in the music industry, when it was, when the music industry was taken over by business executives, that's where the art went out the window. Hmm. You couldn't get away with putting songs that are this eclectic on an album today. Well, first of all, no one even buys albums today, you know? Yeah. In these days, you had to buy an album. You bought the whole thing, and you listened to it. You didn't pick and choose songs. But it was an experience to listen to a record. And this is just, like, where does this come from? It's so creative and and, and expansive in its, in its variety. And so cool. I mean, and, and just the drum sounds, and as you were talking about, the Bonham. I mean, Bonham is still one of the it's a reference today for me you know whenever i'm doing certain kinds of drums i'm like yeah the john bonham kind of drum sound it's it's all about the room yeah it's all about the space that it's in and he's like slamming it it feels like he's got to get a new drum head every time he hits the drum you know it's like just (laughs) yeah this huge sound i read that somewhere that he used uh they used to call them trees but like he used (laughs) he used drumsticks that were like the by far hugest drumsticks they made where it was almost like they had to make sure they had enough of them to go on tour and stuff like that it um just because sounds he just, like it he hit so hard um let's go to another one uh this is another one of your picks it's what it was one of my picks as well and this is to me this is just like uh it's a great song and it, it just kind of showcases i think a lot of pages disability to get amazing guitar sounds it's called dancing days i think this is a, a, a definitely a, a favorite zeppelin song for a lot of people But even that riff, like, what is that riff? What is that? That that I'm not supposed to like that. That's that's kind of dissonant. Dancing days are here again. Right? Yeah. It's I like, mean, what mm-hmm, is that? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so different. Yeah, and it stays right in that like that two or three chord range for the rest of the song, and then it pops back and to that riff. It's still different today. Yeah, yeah. You know what reminds me of Matt is um, another band that we covered on this show, uh, Tropical Fuckstorm. That just the guitar tone and sort of the messiness of that main lick. Yeah, that yeah, is an incredibly yeah, like yeah. acid like riff. I love it. Yeah, he he had a lot of really weird kind of almost lo-fi guitar tones that sound really big. I think it's in one of the verses too there's i think i can't tell if it was like a early like analog synth or like a weird guitar that almost was trying to sound like a pedal steel guitar no there there you go i don't know what that is that it sounds like a farfisa i'd have to hear it the hi-fi version but yeah this is another odd part and they, but yet, all these weird kind of overdub parts like seem to work together so well. Yeah, 
Yeah, this is a great one. I think my next one I wanted to get to was on my list. Um, and mostly I just want to hear this because I love, this is to me is one of the best, like kind of when it kicks the door in things in rock is over the hills and far away. Um, which this you kind of hear at the beginning, they're kind of, you know, English folk and American folk kind of influences uh, that were, you know, maybe more present on like Led Zeppelin three had a lot of that stuff. Um, and then it just, I think like just the entry of the drums in this song is just like so awesome to me. All right. I've got a few timestamps, so I'll play about 15 seconds from the top and then jump to about 125. And just, you know, for a, a big, you know, kind of 70s rock guy, like he's equally adept as like a folk guitar player. He could have easily had some weird careers like a, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. underground folk musician or something. Here we go. Yeah. Like it's kicking. Hey, lady. Oh, <laughs> they fooled me. I will jump to 125 here. I think that's where you wanted to hear. Here we go. Just those like those drum hits are so I I don't I don't have even a lot like intelligent to say other than I just lo- always love that. It goes back to, for me, the connections between these two albums is just like how unexpectedly groovy and funky they could both get. Neither of them are groovy albums, neither of them are funky albums, and yet they're just these these little cells of funkiness that just poke out here and there. Yeah. I I was surprised by both not being super familiar with either of these, surprised by how they're united by that. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I would say about a lot of 60s and 70s bands, like, you know, heavier bands compared to the ones that maybe came in, you know, the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Like, you know, these guys didn't grow up listening to heavy rock. You know what I mean? They grew up listening to Little Richard or Motown or, you know, Otis Redding records. So I think they had just a certain amount of, like, kind of Mm -hmm. rhythmic, quality that that was sort of lost over time i think when rock became a little bit more like maybe heavy-handed in certain ways right it's just funny that the rock band with maybe one of the best known guitarists in the entire world was so adept at making music that was like not heavily reliant on the guitar more on the rhythm in these mm-hmm. in these tracks For uh, sure. that, that's, that's what makes the album stick out to me anyway yeah i wanted to uh tom had a pick that is one of my favorite zeppelin songs um and this, to me, kind of gets to the... They, there was another element to Zeppelin that was sort of this spooky, kind of almost like menacing quality they could have at times. Um, no quarter. Um, I don't know, Tom, if you want to talk a little bit about yeah, this one. Yeah, I picked this one out. Actually, I only recently discovered this song. And I'm talking like in the last year. 
um, while I was doing some research for my uh, upcoming Deathloop score, which is that game comes out, um, and I was looking to create really cool, authentic, dark, dreamy, interesting, late 60s, early 70s tones. And this particular song had this um, very cool treatment on a Rhodes that I had never quite heard exactly like this before. So take a listen. Yeah, so right there you talk about this kind of dark vibe and stuff and cinematic and for me this is very soundtracky right here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this was one of the many influences um that I wanted to incorporate into this new unique sound for for this score. And you know, reverse engineering, I mean that was really the highlight for me is that. That's the one thing I want to zoom in on. And the sound, if you listen to it, for me, it's it's a it's a Rhodes, right? But it's got full tremolo on it, so it's like almost on and off. But then there's something else which I didn't, I wasn't really, I'd never heard before, which uh, on that sound, which is like a little bit. It sounds like there's a wah effect on, it. Hmm. just a slight. I don't know if it's an auto wah or whatever, but it's just it's not a doesn't sound like a flanger. There's chorusing, but. Sounds like there's a wah, and when you put those things together, uh, you get something that's very close to that sound. And I was like, wow, that is interesting and so cool. Yeah, it almost sounds like it's an underwater kind of quality to it. That's that's right, and that's a combination of the, the tremolo, uh, and then I think the wah, too, the kind of filtery on the wah, 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 you know, yeah. kind of does that little thing there. So in terms, of, uh, in terms of inspiring... You know, music for Deathloop or anything else you've created since discovering yeah. this song. You know, what kind of context does that pop up in? Is it like sort of sneaking? Is it intended to make things feel a little more dramatic? Well, you know, it's a color. It's it's a it's an ingredient. Hmm. So you know, it's just like cooking. I I, I always compare music to cooking. Uh, it's you know, everyone can easily kind of picture that. So you you know you 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 have this incredible sauce or you have this incredible dish or whatever it is and you're like okay there's a whole bunch of different flavors and things that like wow what's giving it this character and uh, i just love reverse engineering things and and taking those individual elements those those flavors those ingredients those colors however you want to do it. it's like art too mm-hmm. you know like bob ross laying out his paints on a palette so um you know, a sound like that can be used in many ways, but I used it similarly to what we just heard, where it's kind of out on its own and then maybe it has just a couple of little, you know, ambient things floating around it. And uh, it just creates a vibe. And um, so that's it. That's the way I deal with, I think, about instruments and sounds. I mean, I feel like we've covered this well in, in, you know, both of these albums. I think you talk about just sounds and, and kind of painting kind of with, with sounds and music. I think these are both kind of in their own way a great example of that. Um, I was hoping we could uh, squeeze in. Uh, do you have time for a couple uh, community questions, Tom? Sure thing. Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. 
I will lead with Podbods, uh, who asks, when creating music, uh, this is one specifically for Tom, when creating music, how often do you worry that the piece you're working on might sound too similar to another piece out there or even a piece that you've created in the past? Uh, if that's ever happened to you, how do you sort of deal with that? How do you think about that? Oh, man. This, ugh, goodness, I could talk for an hour about this. Um, <laughs> I, look, I have, a lot, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on this one. Uh, there are 12 notes, folks, at least in Western music. And I've, I've come to realize that if I'm not intentionally copying something, if I'm not actively trying to do something that sounds like this track, but not get in trouble for copying it, right? I don't worry about it. How can I honestly, I mean, what am I supposed to do? How much music is out there? Countless mm. millions and millions. What am I supposed to do? Every time I play, you know, go and figure out what it sounds like. It's like, you can't worry about that. If I'm being authentic as an artist and I have to have some faith that there's going to be something unique and different about what I'm doing. So as long as I'm not actively trying to copy something, uh, I do not worry at all uh, about it. Mm. And, you know, inevitably someone's going to, at some point, somewhere along the line, I might play three notes that someone might say, hey, wait a minute, that sounds like the Avengers. It's like, Oh, dude, really? <laughs> like, doom, bum, bum. Oh, okay. I'll play you 50 other tracks that use three yeah. notes that are those notes in order. Um, but again, you know, if I'm being authentic, I don't worry about it. Now, the, on the other, the flip side of that coin, you know, as a professional, I'm often asked to do things that sound like things or can you do something, you know, it depends what it is. It could be for a score. It could be for a corporate thing it could be for a, whatever uh, you know something like well we want something that kind of has this vibe and it's my job to figure out how to do something that sounds sort of like it and figure out what it is that makes it sound like that without literally copying it and mm -hmm. you know that's depending on how strong they want me to how close they want me to get i can get a little nervous sometimes i'm like you sure because people are gonna tell <laughs> <You know? laughs> sure but um but yeah, I think authenticity, I just have faith and I just go with it and I can't worry about what's out there. I mean, come on. I mean, think about like an artist painting a beach scene. Mm -hmm. hmm. What are a bowl of fruit? Hmm. <laughs> Is there something out there that looks like this apple and this? Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds, sounds like quite a needle of thread. Uh, but I, re I love that confidence. Have you ever had to work with folks who like, I know that once projects get big enough, that actually starts to be a concern and you want to avoid yeah. questions of plagiarism and stuff. Have you ever yes. had to work with anybody who, who like checks it? Just like, I assume having a good network of people, if you come up with the most beautiful piece you've ever written and then six people hear it, one of them's like, oh, that sounds exactly like this Mozart yeah, piece I, that you would have never I heard. Or situation, I mean, the, the situation that I've run in, the mistake that I've made, which I will never make again, is where I allow the client to lead me too close oh and you know and then when it comes out who's everybody gonna point fingers at you know it's gonna be right eating. right so now i won't let that happen you know I'm, i have to just say hey look my name is going on this it's my reputation and you want me to sound like this but then take my name off of it. <laughs> yeah yeah you know so uh you know that's stuff that can happen but no more yeah <laughs> I've, I've crossed that bridge part of the biz uh let's yeah. see john jensen says uh what band from your teenage years 
that you, th- excuse me, that you liked, um, what are the, which of those do you think was head of, the, excuse me, I'll just rephrase this question. It's a little sure. bit confusingly phrased. Um, what band from your te- teenage years was ahead of their time in your mind? Right. Uh, and you know, the kind of music that would work today, maybe didn't then. Right. Well, I'm not sure if, how much it would work today, but I think Kraftwerk was one of the first bands that pops to my head as far as being ahead of their times. If you listen yes. to their late 70s stuff, it sounds like mid 80s. It sounds like full out Yaz or Depeche Mode. And I'm like, wow, that is totally ahead of their time. Like, I don't even know what they were using in 1978 to get that stuff. So totally ahead of their time, uh, I think. And there there are others, but oh. Kraftwerk mm-hmm. is my number one pick. That's really Undeniably, like, yeah. probably maybe the most ahead of their time band perhaps that ever existed. I mean, or, or close, I would say. Um, I guess for me, um, I don't even think about it in terms of a single band, but I, I just feel fortunate because I feel like I, uh, just in the early 90s, there was just so much um, just great hip-hop music. And I, I'm sure that, uh, Tom, you probably in, in your career intersected with some of this. But, you know, I just mm-hmm. felt like there was always something like, you know, there was stuff like, you know, Ghetto Boys came out or Tribe Called Quest or Wu-Tang Clan or, you know, just it, it was just felt like this whole rap was really just feeling like it was coming into its own and, and you know, even early outcasts, stuff like that. I There was just so much, so much going on in that space at that time. And I, I, I just felt kind of fortunate to be able to kind of see that happen in real time. And for the first time, there was like, you know, UOMTV raps where even somebody in the sticks like myself could kind of see new stuff as it was happening, like Ice Cube and and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So that that era to me is just very, um, I don't know, it's a very special era to me because it just felt like people were kind of, when something's new, it's hard to create that. And obviously, I would, you know, you don't get to experience it that often, you know, because, you know, right. like, truly new things don't happen. You know, like, like a craft work, like something that new doesn't happen all that often, That's right. right? That's mm-hmm. right. And I feel we're in the opposite right now where we're just in cookie cutter mode and, you know... It, there's amazing talent and uh, stuff out there, but it's just not celebrated. You know, I mean, yeah. what, what what's being pushed upon the masses is just for me is not where the art is. It's where the money is. And that's why the art is gone. Yeah. It's, you know, if I had to generalize, it's easier than ever to find and also easier to miss than ever, you know, yeah. uh, with that's uh, right. so many different much. ways that people listen to music. Good point. Uh, okay. So our final question, considering time um, is mm-hmm. from Mike Lynch. Uh, he asks, could you sum up your life so far in four songs? I figured this might be a little bit of fun. Um, they can be a song you love, or it could mark a special touchstone in your life. Uh, maybe it appeared in your life at a certain, you know, pivotal moment or time. Um, Tom, do now, you think you, yeah, do you think you could uh, structure your life that way? I had about 60 seconds to think about this one. <laughs> uh, so I could probably write many answers to this and I'll kick myself tomorrow, but let me just see. First, first things that come to mind. All right. Uh, so I'm going to start with Windy. Windy was like an old 70s song. Oh, yeah. When I hear that song, I, it's like the, the last time I heard it and the first time I heard it, I, it was like within three years. It was like when I was a little, little, little kid in the early 70s. Like I could, like I, I heard it before I even remember hearing it. And I, my mom used to say, yeah, I would dance around the house. All when that song came on the radio, I would just dance. So for me, that was like the beginning of my childhood, that happy, carefree life is wonderful kind of time. Um, you know, jumping ahead maybe into my teenage years, um, late teens, I just had aspirations to, to make it big. So I'm going to go with big time. You know, from Peter Gabriel. 
you know, where I, I kind of saw myself going on this fast track and I was going to jump into, you know, fame and money and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'd say then jumping ahead, you know, into, into, you know, decades, maybe into my mid forties, late forties. Uh, I think it's became, I'm going to, I'm going to name the song. If I ever lose my faith in you and, and it, not, not looking at that li- literally as, as, um, like talking to someone, how, you know, like a love song, um, but more of the idea of the world that we live in now. I think that one of the reasons we live in this world of anxiety is because as a whole, people have lost faith in pretty much everything. They've lost, you know, mm. we've, we've, the, the, the veil has been pulled away from almost every institution. There's, we see faults in everything. We see, we can't trust politicians. We can't trust the media. We can't trust, you know, government. We can't, like, everything is like the things I used to feel were stable and I thought I could believe in and count on. I can't, you know, so like everything, we just feel like we're on our own. And, and, and I think that part of the sentiment of the song is why I call that one up. And then the last one. I think, and I hope this continues to be the focus, is I'm going to say, don't worry, be happy. Right? That song from, from the 80s, Barb McFarlane. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. That's his name, right? Yeah, Bobby McFarlane, for sure. McFarlane, yeah, right. So, you know, I think just having a new point of view and, and realizing that you can't make yourself sick because it doesn't serve any benefit. So just there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be stuff going wrong. There's always going to be everything wrong uh but at some point you just have to look around and say you know i can't worry about this and you, it, happiness is a choice so i think that's where i'm gonna end it excellent well <laughs> that's good hopefully there will be a few more songs that you can uh sort of use oh, yeah. to sum up your life in a few years uh, <laughs> yes you gave me four and that's a so you didn't have a lot of you didn't have a lot of time to uh to prepare <laughs> yeah so. no th- those are those are great though uh matt do you want to play the same game do we have time Ooh, yeah this is tough uh i didn't prepare uh i remember as a kid probably the, the first thing i really loved was my parents creedence clearwater revival chronicle which is kind of a greatest hits two lp thing oddly funnily enough i remember that the song i was really into was their cover of heard it through the grapevine by marvin Gaye, which i had no idea was a cover but i remember my mom telling me i used to kind of demand that song um <laughs> uh from them uh i think you know i think going forward um to the point when i was sort of starting to like kind of pay attention to what was going on you know when you're little it's kind of just whatever your parents records are right i think i remember really um the song who can it be now by men at work um i remember like listening to that in the radio and in the car and really liking that. Um, I mean, if you fast forward, I'd have to probably say, you know, like uh, more from later. The song um, Drain You by Nirvana off of Nevermind, which is just a like a really big album mm-hmm. for me in general. And that was, I mean, I know it smells like Teen Spirit. I, I definitely remember the moment that I, I heard that record and, um, and, and, and all of that. Um, but Drainy was, was some, I thought was a little more melodic, and um, that was always my favorite song off that record. And then, um, gosh, probably something. Hmm. 
<laughs> we can call maybe, it too. Uh, maybe uh, uh, the, the song Limelight by Rush. Um, I kind of got introduced to Rush um, and mm-hmm. sort of after the fact, but I, I had a really big phase with Rush and that, that song was always really a big deal to me. And oh gosh, I should probably throw in like something. Mm, maybe like Fight the Power by Public Enemy. That there was really kind of just like, I remember hearing that and just being like, whoa, like kind of almost awestruck by just how noisy and just kind of crazy and just, you know, confrontational it sounded. And I was just like really mm-hmm. just blown away by that record. Cause, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, it was, it was a huge record and it was just, you know, that, that band had such a unique, um, I don't know, just point of view in a number of ways. Yeah. Uh, a lot of anti-authoritarianism in you guys' choices. A lot of, a lot of fight the powerism. I, I, I really like that. That, that feels good. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. experience that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's see. I think that wraps up our community segment. The last thing we yeah. do uh, on our way out is to play a song that the community has suggested. Uh, this week, our song comes from Red8. I hope that I'm pronouncing your username correctly. It's Red V-I-I-I, uh, who suggests Be So Blue by Deserta. It sort of has an 80s uh, shoegazy vibe. Uh, so we'll play that on our way out, um, but I'll let Matt take it away. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, As always, thank you for listening and supporting us. Um, if you want to support uh, MinMax and what we have going on. Um, it's MinMax dot or Patreon.com slash MinMax, M-I-N-N-M-A-X. Um, and Tom, uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Um, it was a great conversation and I, I, I super enjoyed just kind of getting to spend some time with Peter Gabriel in the, the run up to this. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And um, everyone look for um, Death Loop coming out on the 14th. Um, we look forward to the, well, the game looks great and uh, we're excited for the score as well. So, Good luck with that. And do you have any other future projects that you're uh, kind of in the hopper? Man, I was really hoping that I'd get the green light to actually name the name of this next one, but I, I won't. But I will tease mm, by saying, okay. okay, I can't say the name of the game, but it is an intense horror game, perhaps one of the scariest franchises of all time, and it comes out next year. Ooh. And I'm having a blast working on that one. So, Well, that's intriguing. We'll have to... Mm. Uh, Everyone out there listening, put on your uh, detective caps. And yeah, we'll figure it I'm out. gonna start scouring the release date <laughs> schedules. Let the rumors uh, begin. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't either confirm nor deny. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Tom, and, and obviously we wish you all the continued success, and then congrats on uh, all the success you've had in, in games in recent years. So, take care, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully catch up sometime. All right. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. Take care now. Mm-hmm.